Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 6th of June 2017, and it's my great pleasure to welcome to the programme the author, lecturer and filmmaker G. Edward Griffin, who is the founder of Freedom Force International, a network of men and women from all over the world and all walks of life, who are concerned about the erosion of personal liberty and the growth of government power. A graduate of the University of Michigan, Mr. Griffin is listed in Who's Who in America and is known for research into various areas, including ancient earth history, banking, U.S. Federal Reserve, United Nations, all sorts of things, which no doubt we will touch on a few of those things anyway during the interview. He is better known for his works such as the book The Creature from Jekyll Island and the documentary World Without Cancer. And as if all that were not enough, he has served on the board of the U.S. National Health Federation, the International Association of Cancer Victors and Friends, and is the founder and president of other organizations as well. Um, too many to list. Mr. Griffin, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the program. Well, thank you, Julian, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Well, I do appreciate your taking the time to speak with it because I know you, you must be very busy at the moment with the upcoming Red Pill Expo that you've been organising that is going to take place later this month, which, of course, we've mentioned a few times on this podcast over the last few weeks. So thank you for your time coming on the show. Um, we're going to be discussing two main things, really, uh, related things, the Red Pill Expo itself and the so-called truth movement, which... Well, perhaps I won't attempt to define that at the moment. Perhaps uh, that will be to preempt our discussion. So I'll leave it at that, the Red Pill Expo and the Truth Movement, however we might think of that. But I'd like to start with you, Mr. Griffin, if I may. Many listeners will, I am quite sure, be familiar with you and your work, but by no means all. So could you give us an idea of how you and why you got into the kind of work that you've been doing over the years? Okay, well, that's probably the most boring part of this whole thing, because I think my path is very similar to many paths that people who find themselves uh, becoming crusaders for one thing or another. It doesn't just happen overnight. It's not sudden. But way back, I mean, way back in 1959, I first became familiar with some information I picked up rather casually in some little magazine called The Free Man. And in that little magazine, it was talking about principles of the free market and laissez-faire. And that was all new to me. I'm, I was a college graduate. I came through the University of Michigan. Um, I had been taught uh, a little bit about you know political science, but not much. A little bit about history, but not much. And that was probably a blessing because when I go back and look at what I was supposed to be learning about history, it wasn't exactly corrected my view today. But anyway, so I came out of school, like most people, I had no particular interest in the world or society or political currents, ideology, philosophy, none of those things. I just wanted to get on with life find the girl of my dreams, uh, raise a family, uh, you know, and make some money and have security and do fun things. And then I ran across this little magazine and it was talking about some very interesting principles about the free market. So I subscribed to the magazine and looking back on it was the first of many little tiny steps. First, the magazine and then hearing about a book and actually going to the library. I thought when I came out of school, I would never go back into the library again. That was a torture chamber, right? And so it was a long process. First, I became a little bit skeptical about this thing called the United Nations. I was taught in school that it was our last best hope for peace. 
Then I began to find out that the United Nations was not that at all. In fact, it was dominated by tin horn dictators. And how can you have an institution that's dedicated to peace and justice and freedom and liberty and fairness and all that when it's run by crooks and dictators? <laughs> so I, I was sort of a, a red pill of my own way back then. Was that the first time that you came across the notion of collectivism, which is one of the things, of course, that you're famous for? No, that was to come later. This phase of my uh, enlightenment was just sort of an awakening, you know, that, hey, things aren't exactly as I thought they were. And I became concerned about the future, which was sort of a new uh, experience for a young guy like me. I'd never been concerned about the future. <laughs> you know, like most people, we think we're going to live forever and the future will take care of itself and so sure. forth. So, no, this is my earliest awakenings. And so I became an avid reader. And I was reading both sides as best I could, reading both sides of all of these issues. I didn't want to get trapped by propaganda from one side or the other, so I would read both sides and try and come to a conclusion. So that's how I started down this path, and I just got deeper and deeper into it. I quit my good corporate job, and my wife, I thought, was going to have a hemorrhage. Uh, she thought I'd really gone off the deep end. Anyway, she uh, totally was totally on board with what I was doing and decided to support me. So that's how I got into it. And then we come to the deeper understanding. You just mentioned the word collectivism. The deeper understanding was this. In the 1960s, when I was in full gallop, and I still am, by the way, in those days, the total focus of my attention and those with whom I was associating was the danger of the spread of communism. Remember, this is the 1960s and 70s. Countries were falling into communism all around the world. China went communist. We even had a communist nation on our doorstep at Cuba. And uh, most of Latin America, although they were not calling it communism, they were calling it something else. Um, he looked at where these leaders were trained. They all came out of Moscow. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is something bad. So we were focused on communism. And then we, looking back, not much further backward than that, we had just fought a war in Europe against uh, Nazism. We were relieved to think, oh, it's a good thing that Nazism and fascism is dead. But now this thing, communism, was on our doorstep. And we had to worry about that. Now, the point is, little did I realize then that in the name of fighting communism, we here in the United States, and I think in most of the Western world that was still anti-communist, anti-Nazi, anti-fascist, we were actually building the same system in our own countries. But we didn't understand the principles of it. We just thought about these bad regimes. They were bad people. We didn't look too carefully at what was the ideological or philosophical underpinnings that brought them into being in the first place. And now we're to this thing called collectivism. And I found out that here in this country, we were building collectivism in the name of fighting collectivism. I remember I became interested in these ideologies early on, and I started to hang out down at the communist bookstore in Los Angeles. It was called the People's Bookshop. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I went down there and hung out with the comrades, and, and they thought they had a real recruit possible, you know. Mm. And I didn't let on. I really was interested to find out. I didn't go down there to disrupt. I wanted to learn. And so I bought 
most of their books. I read the darn things. I found out a lot of the guys there in the bookstore hadn't actually read these books. They were still operating on slogans, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Let us fight against war and racism and injustice and so forth. That was what was motivating a lot of these people. I think slogans and images are one of the main ways in which uh, communism was successful, actually. Well, now we come to the issue. Slogans and images are how all variants of collectivism come into existence. Uh, in fact, even some that aren't collectivism, I mean, just outright dictatorships. I visited the UAE a few years ago, and that's not collectivism there. That's, uh, I guess you'd call it a modern form of theocracy. Everywhere you look, there were these huge pictures of the prince, like Big Brother, you see, images and slogans about prosperity and building and looking to the future and all these things all we come up with is little slogans like uh, change or make America great again. These are slogans. What do they mean? You have to, nobody asks. They just... yes. no, no. no, they just have an immediate power, don't they? They cut through your yeah. rational faculties and go straight to your feelings. Yeah, right. So anyway, I discovered that these guys, they were working pretty much on slogans and images. But I read the, the darn books. You know, naturally, you start with Karl Marx. You read uh, Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto. And then you read Stalin's works. But Lenin was the guy, very prolific writer, and laid down some powerful strategies that became the backbone of the whole communist movement. Well, anyway, I, I read all that stuff. And then I became curious about this thing called fascism and Nazism. So I decided to go over to that side. They didn't have a bookstore, by the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they burnt them all. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> yeah. But if, if they had had a bookstore, I would have gone there and uh, hung out with the Nazis and uh, find out what they believed. Well, anyway, I did read Mein Kampf, and it's all there. And I discovered the most amazing thing, Julian, and that is that Hitler and Lenin – said the same thing. I found out that there was literally zero significant difference at all between communism and fascism and Nazism. Mm. And then when I read Mao's, uh, you know, little red book and the other things put out by the Communist Party in uh, China, hey, wait a minute, all of these people around the world, whether they're Nazis on the so-called right and, or communists on the so-called left, they believed exactly the same thing. They fought each other, and they were in battle, of course. I mean, the communist countries fought the Nazi countries, but remember, they started off as allies. Mm -hmm. Russia and uh, Nazi Germany were allies in the, in the beginning, and then Russia turned against Germany. They were allies because they really shared a common ideology. Some of the famous communists abandoned the Communist Party and then went into the Nazi Party and became officials there. And it went the other way, too. Nazis quit the Nazi Party and came into the Communist Party. And um, reading their personal stories was just a mind-blower, right, right. you know? I think some people might be surprised to – in fact, many people would be surprised to hear you say that because I think people will be thinking – well, surely there must be differences between National Socialism and Communism. But what you're talking about, if I understand you correctly, is the core of what actually motivates these ideologies. Presumably, you're not saying there are no differences whatsoever. No, uh, correctly. And I think I might have used no significant difference because there are minor differences, of course. Uh, mm. The... Uh, the communists have the hammer and sickle as their uh, emblem, and the Nazis have the swastika. You mentioned National Socialism, which, of course, is the identity of the Nazi party. Nazi is an abbreviation of the German phrase National Socialism. 
So what's the difference between national socialism of the Nazis and international socialism of the communists? One is national, one is international. But in fact, they're both international because Hitler wasn't uh, interested in just stopping with Germany. He had a global view. But to rise to power, to get the support of the people in Germany, he had to focus on the national aspect. The Nazis use race conflict and race hatred as a means of developing emotional affinity to the movement. What did the communists use? Class hatred. It wasn't along racial lines, but it was class lines, the rich against the poor, the capitalists against the people, and so forth. So they had a different uh, hate model, but they both used hate and fear and propaganda. So when you start looking at the significant elements of collectivism, you find it's exactly the same with a little bit of uh, trimming differences on the outside. And what fascinates me is that you say in analyzing that situation, you came to understand that the West or the US in particular, from your own perspective, in in critiquing and in resisting those movements was itself falling prey to collectivism and was not aware of that. Is this why we see what Patrick Wood describes as the gradual move towards technocracy, which he so much talks about? Well, I think it is. And uh, Patrick and I have had some discussions about that. And in fact, I'm anxious to return to that issue with him sometime soon. Mm. We'll both be at the Red Pill Expo coming up in June. Patrick has identified, I think, a very important uh, one of these trimmings on the element of collectivism. And it's kind of new. Uh, It's not really found in either communism or Nazism. Uh, but it is found in collectivism, you see. Uh, and that, that is the idea that somehow with this uh, wonderful age in which we live where we have computers and machines that we can use the machines themselves, program them, we who are wise and uh, just – you know, we who we who can be trusted, uh, we will program these machines so that they will run our lives, and and we have to obey the machines, and that way we get man out of the cycle, and we can therefore have more confidence in our rulers because our rulers will be machines. <laughs> well, <laughs> and presumably our lives will be governed by these various elites for the good of the whole, which is the essence of the collectivist thinking. Exactly. We're back to that. So it's a trimming. It's an important trimming, and it's, it captivates the imagination of a lot of people. But now with this technocracy, we have something that people don't have to work anymore because the machines will do all the work. Hopefully the machines will now do all the thinking, too, because human, you know, human thought is uh, – capable of uh, making error but we can build machines that won't make any errors and so forth. <laughs> yes yes utopianism all over again indeed yeah um, uh, one thing i wanted to bring up um i said to you before the interview is that uh, when i go to your wikipedia page you're described as a far-right conspiracy theorist now as soon as i saw that i assumed that that must be a personal attack upon you and that it must reflect the degree to which you do not have control over what's written about you on that page what's your reaction to that comment that's there Yes, you're absolutely correct in your appraisal of that. I have no control over what's written about me on Wikipedia. Actually, that's a good thing, by the way. I I wouldn't want control. Um, In the beginning, which is probably around uh, 14, 15 years ago or something like that, uh, I was amazed to find out that I uh, was in Wikipedia. Somebody or a group of people had started to put up things about me. 
And they were taking it from my books and from my biographies. Uh, and in some cases, I could tell it was taken from personal contact because unnamed people put things up that I don't think I had ever published. So it must have come from personal conversation. So anyway, it wasn't loaded with praise or anything, but it was favorable. I thought it, it described me pretty accurately, even you know, even went to so far as to say that not everybody agreed with me. Well, that's a fact. And, uh, so I didn't object to that. Mm. But then all of a sudden I noticed, uh, uh, oh, I didn't notice. Somebody called me and said, Ed, that they're calling you um, a conspiracy theorist on your uh, Wikipedia site. Did you know that? And I said, no, I didn't know that. So I went. And lo and behold, my biography had been completely revamped. All of the semi-favorable or, or neutral phrases were removed and been replaced with phrases like conspiracy theorist and far right, things like that. The word controversial was used almost in every sentence. So I knew I had been torpedoed by somebody who didn't like what I was doing. After that, probably about a year after that, I got a call from a lady and she said, uh, you don't know who I am, but I know a lot about you because I am an editor at Wikipedia. And she said, I don't know whether you are aware of this or not, but you have become more or less in the center of a real controversy among the editors at Wikipedia. I said, no kidding. I have been. She said, <laughs> she said yes. And she said, I just wanted to tell you about it. She said, I, re I looked at your biography. It just sounded like somebody was going out of their way to avoid saying something neutral or nice about you. So I began to do my own independent research. And she said, I was really shocked to find out that most of what's on your biography and Wikipedia is wrong. And she said, it, it, to me, it just seemed like it was a hatchet job. So I, she said, I meaning her, I went back and I, I corrected it. And I put it back to what I thought it should be. And she said, within a few hours, my correction had been taken down and it had been put back to where it was. And she said, so then I had another friend here who's an editor and she got into this and she did the same thing and had a similar experience. And the first thing you know, we were involved in the back room. I didn't know Wikipedia had a back room. I think that's what they call it, a back room where the editors themselves duke it out over issues like this. And she said, you might be interested to read what's going on in the back room all about you. So she gave me the link. And I was amazed. The editors and administrators at Wikipedia were at each other's throat over little old me. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did that make you feel? Did you well, feel like you're um, a superhero or did you feel unpleasant about it? No, no. It, it kind of made me feel good because I felt at least there's somebody in there, you know, fighting for the truth. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't just me, by the way. It happened to be I was the central figure, but there were others involved. I mean, here's the bottom line. It turns out that some of the, or at least two of the administrators, that means the higher level editors at Wikipedia, are in my view at least no doubt trolls. Hmm. They are really working for somebody or some other institution sure. because they're on this case 24-7. If you make an entry on any topic relating specifically to alternative health and as you know, I've had a lot to do in, in the field of alternative cancer therapies and have come up with information that supports the idea that there are controls for cancer that are found in nature and that they are at least as good and, in my view, much better than all of the 
toxic chemicals that come out of the um, test tube. Uh, well, that doesn't set well with the pharmaceutical industry. And it's, it's somebody with a lot of money has hired people to do nothing but just watch Wikipedia 24 hours, seven days a week. I mean, all night long. I mean, there's somebody on that site watching any new item that comes up relating to alternative health cares and uh, health matters in general. And if anything comes up that challenges mm. the orthodox view that uh, pharmaceutical drugs are the treatment of choice, and if anybody has the audacity, such as I did, to say that there's a very effective treatment for cancer that's found in the seeds of fruits, well, that is absolute heresy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a declaration yes. of war. Yes. So that's what we discovered about Wikipedia, and it continues today. Mm. And by the way, this lady told me later that she had to back off because they threatened to kick her out if she continued to do what she was doing. Yeah, I'm somehow not surprised to hear that. I think uh, anybody who thinks this kind of thing does not go on with respect to Wikipedia is quite naive, really, because it's such an important publication and there are so many vested interests. It's bound to happen. And in fact, I do say to my daughter, who's 13 years old, you know, if you're going to use Wikipedia, that's okay as a first place to start finding information. But if it's a contentious issue watch out <laughs> because, <laughs> yes. uh, you don't know who's saying what uh, behind the scenes there so and i think she's taken that to heart yes i think that you know as long as we're dealing with issues as you say not, not contentious if we're talking about at what temperature water boils at yes. 2000 feet elevation That's right. you can pretty much rely on it but if there's a vested interest involved especially a large corporate interest or a governmental interest then you have very good reason to be suspicious of, of the accuracy of the information. Absolutely. Watch out. Now, you have this organization and website called Freedom Force International. Now, it says on there that your mission is guided by the principles of the creed of freedom. And I wonder if you could tell us what the creed of freedom actually is. I tried to find it and I couldn't locate it. Could you tell us what that is? Well, yes. Um, I have to back up again. I, without the backstory, the answer may not mean much. Okay. I have been involved in various movements fighting against collectivism ever since 1960. And I have found that no matter how many people seem to be involved in these movements, no matter how active they are, no, how much, no matter how much money they pour into them, they always fail. We've been in a steady march toward total collectivism ever since World War One. It's been a steady drumbeat. No matter who's in office, no matter what party is in office, no matter how many organizations are out there, no matter how many demonstrations there are, no matter what, it's just a steady march toward total collectivism, which is sort of described by George Orwell's 1984. So the question has always been in the back of my mind, why is that? How come we can't win anything? You have to admire your enemy's tactics and his determination. There's one thing that we have to admit, I think, about both the communists and the Nazis and the newer versions of them. They don't call themselves that at all. Now, today they call themselves social democrats or something like that. But you have to admire them that they know exactly what they want. You read Karl Marx and you know what communism is all about. You read Das Kapital and you know exactly what motivates all of the socialist uh, believers. And if you read Mein Kampf, you know exactly what motivated all of the devoted members of the Nazi party. 
they have their uh, statement of principles, their call to action. Whereas on our side, it's always been reactive. We never knew what we wanted. We just knew what we didn't want. We didn't like these bad people who were taking over our lives. And so we thought that if we just got rid of those bad people and got somebody elected or replaced in some way that we liked or who said the right things, that they didn't like those bad people either, that was all we needed you know, to get somebody else in. And we thought once we got the bad person out of office and the good person into office, that everything was going to be okay. Well, that's the reason we've had this steady beat always in the same direction because that is not the way it works I see. Yeah. you know if you have the system that's wrong you can put good people into the system and the system will corrupt the people or it will destroy the people mm. so that finally dawned on me that we needed a statement of principles how many of my friends i thought could define what this thing was called freedom and i, I started asking my friends well, how do you define freedom and i discovered they had no idea to most of them, even the more educated ones, the, when I say educated, I mean they were well-read. Even most of those people thought that freedom was pretty much like just not being in jail. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's not what it was. It's what it wasn't. And uh, so I thought we're in really big trouble. That Nobody can define freedom. They can't stand up on a platform and say, I believe in freedom for this reason, this reason, and this reason. Oh, by the way, this reason also. And here's my historical reference. And here are the examples I, I used to defend that position. And do you, anybody want to debate? Nobody was in that mode. So I decided about the year 2000 approximately that we needed a creed, something to believe in, a statement of principles that everyone – should be able to understand and sign on to, at least if their minds were in the same place that we were, that we really did not want dictatorships and uh, oligarchies Mm. and that kind of thing. You call it a creed. It's not a religious creed, is it? This is something presumably that could be shared by people of any faith or or no faith. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's something creed means, uh, I believe, you know, what Mm -hmm. what is the belief? What do we believe in? Mm -hmm. It was amazing to see how quickly I was able to put it together. Now, I say that with no particular pride because it wasn't me doing it. I've spent by that time well over 40 years reading the literature of the great thinkers of the past. And some of it apparently stuck on the inside of my skull. And so when it came time to create a creed of freedom, I found all I was doing was just going back to the things I had read by the great thinkers that were before me. Mm. And everything that's in this creed a student of the literature would recognize that I uh, uh, I pirated from somebody. <laughs> well, anyway. Presumably you state a lot of these things in positive terms rather than in negative. We, we don't want this and we don't want that, as according to what you've just been saying. Yeah, that's exactly the goal. You can always state things in positive or a negative way. Mm. And I thought we should be as positive as we could. But one of the principles, by the way, is the importance of recognizing what is the proper function of the state or the purpose of the state. Uh, It's that the state must be negative and not positive. Uh, Let's talk about that. Um, I'm interested that you do include the state in what you say. So presumably you're you're not taking an anarchist position on this. No. And uh, and some of my best friends are what they now call themselves anarcho-capitalists. And uh, we agreed in principle, uh, but they have a different vocabulary than we do. In most uh, dictionaries, uh, and in in the minds of most people, the word anarchy simply means absence of government, no government. Well, 
now that we're forced to deal with the word government. What is government? Well, the word suggests the answer. It's to govern. Uh, anybody you know want to be governed? Not many. <laughs> so why do we want a government? Okay, maybe we're using the wrong word. When the Constitution of the United States was written, and forgive me for going back to that, I know more about that than origins of these same rights in other areas of the world. But when that was written, the founding fathers used the word government, and I think that was a mistake because they, they took that from the old world because that was the word you used. But what they built was not an institution to govern people. They built an institution to protect people. The whole purpose of the state in that document was to protect the lives, liberty, and property of its citizens, nothing more. That was the foundation. That was the experiment. That was the revolutionary aspect of that whole document. It wasn't a document to describe the, the power of government. It was a document to describe the creation of a protectorate. They didn't use that word. I wish they had. That would have made it so much easier two centuries later to talk about it, you know. But anyway, they used the word government, but what they created was a protectorate. Now, the reason that's important in this discussion with anarchy is because if you use the word government and you say there is no government, in most people's minds, that means no state. That means no group of people that have the authority to direct the activities of other people. Uh, and this, I think, is a condition that never has happened before and never will happen, never can happen, because when you live in a society, a complex society, you know, more than five or six people on a desert island, you have the problem of protecting your life, your liberty, and your property against predators, other people who just want to take your life, your liberty, or your property. So you have to protect yourself. It's a natural right. We're all born with the right of self-defense, to use force if necessary to defend our lives, liberty, and property. But that's it. Ethically, we cannot justify the use of aggressive force because we want to take the life, liberty, or property of somebody else. So when you say wars are bad, you have to always say, well, are they defensive wars or are they aggressive wars? You have to make this distinction between positive and negative force. So that's why I say the proper function of the state is negative. Mm. Okay, so could you possibly give us some of the items or the tenets of this creed? Just give us a flavor of how it sounds. Well, yes, I'll, I will be happy to do that. And uh, we don't have time to read them, but I'll give you the headings. Uh, the first one is the intrinsic nature of rights. Collectivists think rights come from the state. Individualists believe that rights come with you when you're born. It's a big difference. Yeah. A supremacy of the individual. This gets to the heart of it. Collectivists believe that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. Boy, that is the seat of all of the problems because it's got nothing to do with the people but who's running the people? Yeah, that's a very interesting one, because I think a lot of people would hear you say that and think that if you're talking about the individual, that sounds very selfish yeah. in a bad sense. But yeah. that's not what you mean, I should think. I presume you, you, you mean that the power of rational self-will is at the base of all your decisions and your actions. And if you choose to act altruistically, well, again, that's you choosing to do so. So it doesn't necessitate selfishness at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, almost all of the individualists I know are the most selfless, uh, charitable people you can possibly imagine. 
But in response to your question, Julian, it's more than just the individual uh, consciousness and will. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that the group doesn't even exist. Now, I pause on that because when I suddenly came to that realization, it was a real epiphany. What is a group? Group is a word to describe an abstraction in the mind. It doesn't exist. It's a mathematical concept. You cannot see a group. You cannot touch a group. Mm. You can only see and touch individuals. And when we get a whole bunch of them, we say, well, that is a mathematical concept, and we'll call it group. But it's like the word forest. There's no such thing as a forest. Only trees exist. So when you say that something is a mathematical concept, has rights, and real people do not, or they're subjected to the greater rights of that abstraction, you've made a huge mistake because you've set in motion an idea that allows demagogues to rise to the top and say, I speak for the group, yes. and you must follow my directions. I think that's an extremely important point. And in fact, that has come up in various conversations over the years that we've had here at the podcast. As you say, that the group is merely an idea, an abstract concept. It does not exist as something that you can put your finger on in the real world. And I totally agree that that therefore gives some tin pot dictator the opportunity to represent this mathematical abstraction. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it's a very, very important point. That's, that's one of the common ingredients in all collectivism. Mm. They all have that. That's the ideological foundation for committing great crimes. No matter what wars they start, no matter who they kill, no matter what great injustice they impose, it's always, well, it's for the greater good of the greater number, you know, mm. in the name of national security, you know, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. We can kill people Absolutely. if we don't like them because yeah. it's for the greater good. Mm. It's so vicious when you get to an understanding of it. Okay, that's number two. Number three is freedom of choice. Collectivists believe that if something should be done that you should force people to do it, whether they want to or not. That's what seatbelt laws are all about. I mean, we all know that seatbelts are a good idea. But if you're a collectivist, you say, all right, if it's a good idea, let's pass it along. Put people in prison if they don't do it. Individualists say, yeah, seatbelts are a good idea. I urge everybody to put on their seatbelt. In fact, they'll even contribute some money to an educational campaign. We'll do commercials to convince people to do it. But if, if somebody is stupid enough not to do it, I don't want to put them in prison. We believe in freedom of choice, but collectivists really don't think that freedom works. Under the collectivist mentality, there's a law for everything. And every day they keep adding thousands and thousands of new laws for the greater good of the greater number, of course. But at the end of that process, we live in a prison world, a world of so many laws that all of us are criminals, whether we know it or not. Number four is property rights are human rights. That's a huge topic. If you don't have the right to property, then you don't have the means of your own independence. And in that case, you are dependent on somebody else. And under collectivism, that somebody else is always the state. And that means you are the slave of the state because you're not allowed to have any means of being independent. Equality under law is number six. Collectivists speak a lot about, yeah, we want equality under law, but they don't practice it. Most of their laws are designed deliberately to create inequality among different classes and groups of citizens. And then finally, here's one I added fairly recently, a couple of years ago, the great leader concept. I always knew about it, but I wanted to leave it off the list because I thought, well, it's not too important. But now in later years, I saw that as America is unwinding the idea of a great leader is becoming more and more important with each passing election. Until now, 
I'm sorry to say that the American people are in demand of a great leader, just like the people in Germany and fascist Italy who wanted a great leader and selected Hitler, who wanted a great leader and got Mussolini. We are now asking and demanding for a great leader to lead us in this uh, great endeavor. And it's a horrible thing because even though we may have a good man who could be a great leader, people don't live forever. And if we give this great man, this truly worthy individual, all this governmental power to control the rest of society, that man eventually is replaced by someone else. Do you think that kicked into a, a new gear really with Obama when he was this, you know, the hope and change choice for president? Well, it's been prevalent, I think, in here in the United States ever since Woodrow Wilson. Uh -huh. Most of the elections here have involved uncanny situations where people don't vote for anybody. They vote against somebody. Yes. It's not that they really like the candidate they're voting for. They say, well, I don't like him either, but I hate the other guy, you see. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we, we want somebody to be stronger than the other guy. We want somebody to do something. And Mr. President, what are you going to do about jobs? Well, where in the Constitution is the president supposed to do anything about jobs? In order for him to do something about jobs, he's got to control society. He's got to tell us what to do, what wages to pay, what work we're entitled to do, what educational background we need, where we should live, what hours we should work, what kind of health care we get. That's how you do something about jobs is by controlling society. And here we are have, having people saying, oh, please control us. And all of this starts with the idea of the great leader. So that's that's an important thing in collectivism. And finally, that number eight is what we started off with, which is what is the proper role of the state? So we're doing everything we can to create a unity based on ideology, not on basis of lifestyle or issues. We love diversity. We love people that have different cultures, different languages, different mm. nationalities, different religions. We don't care. As long as they don't try and take away our lives, liberty or property, we can be really good friends. So that's our creed. Well, that's certainly a very challenging and thought-provoking set of principles you've developed. They're very worthwhile thinking about at length, indeed. And people will find that at Freedom Force International, um, presumably there is a tab that leads people to that list. Yes, it is. It's, uh, you go to freedomforceinternational.org, and then the menu item is the Creed of Freedom. Okay, well, let's turn to the Red Pill Expo, which no doubt dovetails with uh, everything that you've been saying there. This is taking place, and I've said this before on the podcast, uh, later this month, 23rd, 24th of June, in Bozeman, Montana. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> yeah, um, now, the subtitle to the expo is Because You Know Something Is Wrong, which is certainly provocative, and I'm sure many people are quite aware there's something wrong, but quite what is wrong is the question. And you have these three phrases that go along with that uh See through the illusion, escape the matrix, take the red pill, which of course taps into the matrix films. So as I say, I have talked a little about this on the podcast before, but not obviously in any great detail. So could you give us your own introduction to the expo, what it's essentially about, what you hope to achieve through it? Yeah, I certainly will, Julian. I'll try and not, not be as verbose as I have been on these other issues. <laughs> no problem. It's fascinating. Yeah. The red pill obviously is taken from that uh, science fiction movie yeah. popular about 20 years ago called The Matrix. And in case there's somebody listening that doesn't know what that's about, it, it's a story in which all of mankind is living in a 
in a, an illusion. Uh, they're not really um, leading lives at all. They're all stationary. I don't know how they're being provided with nourishment, but anyway, they're not, they're not doing anything. And they're, everything they imagine, they think they're leading a normal life, going to work, raising a family, had, taking a vacation, all that stuff, going to church. All of this is just in their minds. And somebody breaks out of that, some human breaks out of that and decides that he wants to rescue uh, everybody else and get them out of the matrix so they can live in reality for a change. And the decision point in this uh, story is that in order to break out of the matrix and see reality, you must take a red pill. The other pill is blue. And if you want to stay in the illusion because it's comfortable, you don't want to have to confront reality. But then take the blue pill and go back into the world of illusion, go back into the matrix. So that's what it's all about. I thought it was it was a wonderful allegory for the world in which we live, because all of us, including myself, for sure, in earlier years and probably still today a little bit, we all have been living under great illusions. And uh, we've been talking about some of them. What is the proper function of the state, for example? That's one of those illusions. What is our government really doing? Are they there to help us or are they there to control us? Most people think that, you know, that the government is responsive to them. They believe that when they go to the polls and vote for somebody that somehow that translates into the fact that they are in control of their political destiny. That's one of the greatest illusions you can possibly imagine today if you really understand how politics works. So that's just one of these huge illusions. And you find those things in healthcare, for example. I remember I used to think that that the whole structure of this huge, wonderful, expensive, modern, technologically advanced healthcare industry was there to keep me healthy. <laughs> I, I laugh now because I really believe that. Now I realize that no, the reality is that it's dominated by the pharmaceutical industry and some of its uh, compatriots who do not want us to be healthy. They want us to be ill. They don't want to cure us of diseases. They want to have us control our diseases and, and take their pills and their treatments every day, every month, every year for the rest of our lives because that's a cash flow to them. If you cure a disease, that cuts off the money. Just give people pills and treatments so that they can at least work. You know. Anyway, my illusion was shattered and I took the red pill. And I'm just saying that we have those kinds of illusions all around us. And some of us have taken a lot of red pills, and we know that we still have some more. So my idea was to bring together everyone who has become sort of a crusader on these various areas of red pill illusions, breaking out of the illusion, I should say, bring them together and let them meet each other because most of them feel quite isolated. They feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm all alone. Uh, am I the only person that sees this, you know? And so we wanted to, to get together and network with each other and form a coalition and learn that they do have a strength under unity. And then the unity is not on the basis of all getting together on some issue like forced vaccinations, for example. That's one of the hot topics right now that will be discussed at the Red Pill Expo, mandatory vaccines and some People who have taken the red pill think that that's a very bad idea. Uh, somebody wants to put an end to war. Somebody wants to expose the illusion behind money and banking. That would be me. Uh, bring all of them together and allow them to continue to retain their point of view, their issues, their energy, their leadership. But just realize that the common enemy is this thing called 
collectivism. And the common salvation is this thing called individualism. That's the reason we're doing this. In other words, we're trying to build an international movement to defeat the forces of collectivism. So I understand then what you're trying to achieve with this. What uh, intrigues me, though, is why you chose these particular subjects, because there are subjects which you could have chosen that you haven't included. There are people who you could have had as speakers, but you haven't chosen them. So why that particular collection of people and subjects? Well, I have to tell you the truth. We had no formula at all. You're right. We had so many issues, so many people to choose from. We just opened up the door and said, okay, let's see who is ready to go. What is the easiest way to get going? We just start. You're not attempting to establish some kind of orthodoxy within the so-called truth movement. You're not setting boundaries or anything like that. Absolutely not. That's contrary to our principles. Our only boundary really is the creative freedom. Mm -hmm. So therefore, there should be no surprise then that there are people who are going to speak who disagree with other people who are going to speak on various issues. That's just a healthy disagreement that you you want to see, presumably. Exactly. That that comes with a package. If we didn't have that, then what's our purpose? Yeah. Well, I'm very glad to hear you say that, actually. I I was immediately, as soon as I saw the name Lord Christopher Monckton there on your list, I was reminded of the fact that, uh, you know, he's highly critical of climate alarmism, of course. But I've heard him say that he's not personally convinced by the global geoengineering uh, or indeed that 9-11 was a false flag. And I immediately thought to myself, well, he's speaking alongside, you know, people such as yourself and Richard Gage and James Corbett. And I was thinking, well, how does that all fit together? But what you said about the way in which people can have their core concern about collectivist principles and yet have different ways of expressing their concern about things going on in the world today. I think that is uh, very illuminating, actually, the way you've expressed that. Yes, it's, it's, it's an essential part of our movement, freedom of choice. I mean, that's it. Even among ideas or interpretation of facts, that's really what we're talking about, interpretation of facts. Mm. Uh, interesting that you mentioned uh, Lord Monckton's objection to the idea of um, a geoengineering. Mm. We had him as a featured speaker back in last December at a conference in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, the conference title was Global Warming, an Inconvenient Lie. It was a fantastic program. It blows away this whole myth of global warming. But um, Moncton was there, and we had a young man speaking on geoengineering. And I heard Lord Moncton say beforehand, he said, oh, this is going to be a bunch of poppycock or something like that. (laughs) But he went and listened, and at the end of that, Um, He went up to this speaker and he says, young man, he says, um, I I believe uh, that you have changed my mind about a very important topic. Well, that is delightful to hear. That is one of the things that presumably you do actually want to achieve with this. That is it. People can express their different opinions, but people are open to learning. And uh, yes, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Yes, that's exactly what the Red Pill Expo is all about. And you hope that this will be expanded and there'll be future expos in presumably different countries even. Is that your hope? Oh, Lord, yes. I'm hoping this is our first venture, so we dare not get uh, too far ahead of ourselves. Mm. But there's no limit to this. It should be in every country. There are different red pills Mm. to be taken in every country. And considering this actual event here at the end of June, is it still possible to get in? Yes, it is. Uh, The Uh facility is quite large. And our enrollment is rolling along. It's conceivable that we could run out of space. Mm. Uh, We have room for about a 1,000 people there. 
And our enrollment right now is uh, about 400 and moving quite rapidly. So I don't know if we'll hit the peak of 1,000 or not, but we're going to come pretty close to it. Okay, so if people want to go, they should be confident they'll be able to get in quite easily. It's residential, isn't it, I understand? Can you go in as a day visitor? You could go in on a, at the door. There's no day pass. Right. But that would be silly because the price would be, um, oh, at least $100, $150 more. The price, by the way, is quite reasonable considering this kind of an event. And you look at all these speakers and everything. But if anybody really wants to do that, I urge them not to put it off. Not because there might not be a ticket available, but because the air flights are filling up and the hotels are filling up. Right. Okay. So they have to go to redpillexpo.org to book that, I presume. Yes, at redpillexpo.org. Or so we can track the response. We'd like to know how people heard about this. Mm -hmm. I prefer that you use redpillexpo.net. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But either one, yeah. you there. Right. Well, I'll put a special link to that one, the .NET version. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, a lot of people, especially here in the UK, will not be able to go, including myself, unfortunately. But you said in an email to me a few weeks ago that it would be videoed and there'll be links to that afterwards. Is that still the plan? That's still the plan. There's such a demand for this. And obviously, most people can't make that long trip. Hmm. So it would be a shame to keep this uh, on a camera chip somewhere. So, yes, we're going to uh, put it all together. And uh, probably, uh, I'm guessing about two weeks after the event, uh, there will be a broadcast. We're not going to charge for that. We just put the whole thing up on the Internet and a free replay. Hmm. And if anybody wants to um, be notified of the broadcast date, I guess uh, just come to redpillexpo.net and um, sign up for that. And um, I'm guessing there's a place for that. There should be. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Uh, So when you say a a broadcast date, will it be broadcast and then that will be over? Or will there be a permanent link that can be embedded into a web page that people could watch it whenever they want to? the tentative plan, uh, Julian, is that it will be broadcast several times. Uh-huh. Uh, like it'll be broadcast over a week, and then on a weekend, all the programs will be up. Then it'll be avail- available as a DVD. Oh, I see. And then periodically, we'll come back and put it back on a broadcast again, a free broadcast, hmm. sort of an on-off, on-off situation. You know, there's something about human attention span. If you see something all the time, hmm. <laughs> you tend to ignore it. Yes, I do see what you mean. Yes, I can see the (laughs) wisdom in that. Okay, well, that's very exciting. As I've said before, I really wish I could be there, but I cannot. I am stuck here in the UK uh, in the bad weather. (laughs) We've got an election, so uh, it's even worse. Um, So what I want to do is to, for our final section, to move on to the other question, which, of course, was the broader issue about the truth movement, as it's often referred to. Um, Now, as, as I've said to you before, I do have reservations, as I know many people do, about the term the truth movement. I mean, is it even meaningful to call it a movement? Does the word truth even, what does it even mean in this context? You know, But I suppose it is, a, it is a useful term because it does provide a kind of umbrella phrase for people to share concerns and approaches to looking at the world. But I think it's a loose term and I think it's, it's rarely well defined, if defined at all. So what I want to ask you, um, I mean, we've, we've talked around this to some extent already, but more formally now, um, how do you understand the term the truth movement, if indeed you do use that term at all? Is it even possible to define this satisfactorily? I agree with you totally, Julian. Uh, I, and I have to admit that occasionally I have used that phrase myself. Hmm. And then once I heard the word come out of my mouth, I think, oh, I 
I should have found a better word. Mm. I think, yeah, it's useful because most of the people who identify with the truth movement, I feel are on the right track. So I, you know, as a group, as a generality, I feel comfortable with it. Mm. But I certainly agree with you that just because you say this is truth doesn't mean very much. Any collectivist can say this is the truth. The collectivist could say with all sincerity that they are the truth movement. So it doesn't get you very far. And uh, so I, I agree with that. And it's, it's probably a word we shouldn't use. However, there are some very strong elements uh, in our true movement that use it. And in, when they use it, like when they say the truth about uh, 9-11, for example, the people in that group, I feel very comfortable with. I think that they're very careful with their selection of facts and their conclusions. So I have no trouble seeing the word truth connected with, with their message. But anyway, so I have the same uh, questions and cautions that you do, and I think it's wise to question and challenge everything, even those things that are apparently on your own side of the debate. Yes, indeed. And that's a very important point to make. Because I mean, I was going to ask you about some problems with not just the term truth movement, perhaps also with this approach to questioning things to the extent that uh, you are encouraging. And indeed, I am encouraging people to question things. I mean, questioning authority, institutions, government uh, in particular, is vital. We, we must do that. I'm all for that. But I do think there are some dangers with that, which I think are not often explored. And may I just put a couple to you? Yeah. I don't know whether yeah. you agree, but I think it can sometimes lead to a, an over-reliance on self as the kind of arbiter of all knowledge for the individual. You know, I something like... Um, you know, I won't believe anything at all unless anything that anybody tells me, unless I can prove it for myself. Now, the problem that I see with that is that we cannot all be physicists or chemists or biologists, historians, geographers, philosophers, etc. We, we do have to take certain things on faith. So how do we, you know, how do we strike a balance there, find a middle way between questioning absolutely everything when we're, we're just not up to the job and questioning nothing, which, of course, is a very unhealthy thing? A very good point. And I don't know that there is a a correct answer to that one that would be thought of as correct by everyone. Mm. All I know is how it works with me. And I think this is generally true is that I start off being pretty skeptical, uh, bordering on cynical. Sometimes I try to avoid that, but very skeptical about all new information. And so in those in that stage, I try and dig in to the raw data if I can. If I don't have the time for that or don't have an opportunity because I don't have access to the raw data, then I start looking at who is making this position, this statement, Mm -hmm. and see if I can judge on the basis of their previous record. You know, are these people who have been reliable in the past in areas that I do know about? Mm. And then, you know, the process continues that way. You just don't jump to conclusions right away. I I have taken some issues a long time for me to come to meaningful uh, opinions about. And I have to admit, it's largely on the basis of the source of the information, because I am unable to do the raw data research myself. I believe, for example, that the Antarctic is there. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I'm glad to hear it. I suppose, in, in in a sense, I suppose you could say with things like that that there's no reason you're not presented with a good reason, or in fact, maybe any reason to think that that is not the case. Yes, and so there's no impetus even to begin yeah. questioning such a thing. Yeah, exactly. But the more the more uh, controversy there is around an issue, then the less that element. Uh, uh, yes. comes into play. So I don't have an answer. I think it's something that everybody does instinctively. I'm reminded of um, the word proof. We have a problem with that word as much as we do with the word truth. What? When is something proved to be true? Well, <laughs> I don't know. There's, really? <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's no such thing as proof to everybody. There's only evidence. Some evidence will convince me that something is true, uh, but it might not convince you that it's true. You might say, well, that's interesting, but I want more evidence. Mm. So then more evidence comes along and you're convinced, but um, your mother-in-law is not. <laughs> well, she wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> and she needs even more evidence and so forth. And finally, when you have an overpowering uh, mountain of evidence and you're convinced, now you say, well, yeah. in my mind, at least, it is proved. So the bottom line is there's no such thing as absolute proof. No. Proof is a variable depending on the mind of the beholder. Mm-hmm. We reach a, a reasonable position and we, we go for that. Yes, I see that. But of course, we can't approach everything in that way, can we? Because we can't collect the data or have access to all the knowledge that's out there. So there is a, yeah. an element of trust. There is an element of faith. Um, I mean, what, what, let, let me put this to you. I don't know whether you would go with this or not, but one thing that I've found very helpful over the years has been what I call, anyway, a hermeneutic of trust. And that is kind of the opposite of what, you know, some postmodern authors call a hermeneutic of suspicion, which seems to be looking for sort of motives behind things. What is it that's causing somebody to say or think a certain thing, always being very suspicious. And I I find that personally not very helpful because it leads to this kind of cynicism that you talked about. Whereas, I mean, I'm getting this, of course, from my background in biblical studies. If you have a, a hermeneutic of trust, there is this kind of stability where you say to yourself, well, basically, I will trust the things that are around me unless I have some reason to start questioning it. And at that point, then I start to say, ah, now, what am I really faced with here? And that tends to ground me. It doesn't give me that um, dismissive attitude and say, oh, no, I I trust everything, but just gives me this um, stable position where I don't have to worry that everything's proven to me, but I, I only become unnerved and unsettled when I hear certain things that begin not to make sense, when I say, ah, now I have reason to question such and such. I don't know whether that makes sense, does it? Well, it does. Uh, you know, hermeneutical uh, reasoning is uh, pretty inevitable. Mm. Uh, we're judging new information partly on the basis of how well it fits with our older information that we have come to trust. If it's completely out of whack, we, we have a great resistance to it. But if it seems to fit everything we think we know, we, we don't resist it. It's, yeah, that's probably true. So that's a natural process. And uh, mm. I, I guess it's good. But that doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that it's correct, mm. because maybe your previous information yes. is erroneous as well. Absolutely. Yes. Now, that is the problem we have is because our previous information could well be flawed. And that's what the red pill is all about. Mm. 
Yes, there is an interesting balance, isn't there, between those two approaches? I see that. Yeah. So that's interesting because I've found that helpful, and yet I've found that helpful within the context, as it were, of already having swallowed the red pill. That sort of grounds me within that. Yeah. Um, but I, I see what you mean. If I hadn't swallowed the red pill, then yes, that kind of hermeneutic of trust might encourage me just to accept what the establishment says about everything. So yes, there is an interesting balance there. Um, one of the things I notice about some people within the truth movement, I'm going to use that phrase, um, is a tendency to want to create some kind of orthodoxy. We've touched on this. I want to say just a little bit more about it. You know, as if there are certain tenets of faith that we must adhere to, to be considered proper truthers, to use that phrase. Um, I, I'm getting the impression that you very much resist that and you want to encourage people to avoid that kind of divisive thinking where you have to sign up to certain things in order to be considered a real truth seeker. Would you say that your Red Pill Expo is actually partly about exactly that, trying to say to people, avoid being divisive, avoid creating orthodoxies that people must sign up to? Exactly. And uh, it's, it's a delicate line because um, there are certain things that we do insist upon. And I struggled with that uh, because the tendency is to say, well, you either believe it or you don't. Mm. You know, uh, do you want orthodoxy? Do you want conformity? Well, those are negative words, of course. But um, what if you used a different word? What if you said, do you want agreement? Well, that's okay, isn't it? Mm. Because it implies that we're not going to force anybody, but we're hoping that through freedom of choice and, and logic and intellectual commitment, they will agree yes. with us. And now we can work together. And that's the, in that sense, we do expect agreement on the creed of freedom. Now, not everybody that comes to Red Pill has to agree with that. No, not at all. But we just wanted to state clearly up front what we believe. That's all. And uh, this whole event is sponsored by Freedom Force Inter uh, International. And I felt we had an obligation to let everybody know who cared what we believe, why we're doing this. We didn't want somebody coming along and saying, well, did you know that this whole expo is being sponsored by a bunch of people that believe they believe that we shouldn't have seatbelt laws or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> uh, well, what about when, when people hear things like, oh, you've got to wake up or I started to go down the rabbit hole or people who, who just listen to what they're told. They're the sheeple. These kinds of phrases. I'm, un, I'm a little bit unhappy about those. I mean, even waking up, which people do use an awful lot because, I mean, I don't know whether you agree, but it seems to create a kind of us and them mentality, which I think would be quite off-putting for many people. Well, I agree with that. Um, I find myself occasionally uh, using phrases like that. But I try to keep them mild, such as, well, I woke up. Okay, that's I mm. can see myself saying that. Or uh, it was an epiphany or something like that. Yeah. I, I try very hard not to express that concept in a way that implies that the person to whom I'm speaking is a dullard. Mm. You know, yes. Yes. Uh, I don't want to insult anybody. And this I think sometimes uh, people accidentally do that. Perhaps that is what you're reacting to is the implication that, well, I I have arrived and you, you stupid one, you don't know anything about this. Well, yeah, particularly the term sheeple, which I do object to. I think that does work in that kind of way. But I was thinking even more broadly, actually, about something like maybe I'm trying to persuade somebody that 9-11 We've been lied to about 9-11. Um, but if I then attach to that and I woke up 
and then I start adding other concerns as well. People could be, I think, forgiven for thinking, ooh, they want me to wake up in an almost cult-like sense to a sudden different way of looking at the world. I can understand why people might be worried about that. So I do tend to shy away from Mm -hmm. using very sort of us and them black and white terms like wake up. I think you've touched on a very important uh, area that we need to be conscious of. We need to practice our vocabulary. Uh, We need to practice our methods of communicating these ideas because it is so easy to offend people that you don't want to offend. And then you close their minds and you've defeated yourself. I remember early on when I became aware of some of these things. Now, here I go. See, when I became aware of some of these things, which is an accurate statement, uh, I started to go around. I wanted to grab everybody by the lapels and shout in their faces, wake up, you know, don't you realize? And, and, you know, I did that. And I found out really fast that that was, um, uh, did not, what's the word? Well, counterproductive. I ruined a lot of cocktail parties and I was never invited back. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, it's good advice, isn't it? Um, I shot myself in the foot. (laughs) Okay, a couple of more things here. I mean, one thing that I've become very concerned about over the last few years is the amount of disinformation that seems to be um, injected into this truth movement scene um i had a conversation about three years ago with barry zwicker about the term conspiracy theory and the way that had been weaponized by the establishment to inhibit any criticism um and one of the techniques that we discussed was i think what he called guilt by association something like that anyway you make sure that people associate really bizarre ideas with genuine ones so that they end up rejecting everything you know so if somebody has questions about 9-11 they'll end up thinking well i don't want to be associated with people like that because those are the people who believe in aliens and they're running the world from the Vatican, that sort of stuff. So by having that um, association of strange ideas, that can work to control people's thinking. Now, given that that kind of technique does exist... And the fact that there does seem to be an increasing mass of weird ideas on the internet about all the kinds of issues that you are presenting at the Expo, to what extent do you think this is deliberate, paid-for disinformation? If you had asked me, do I believe that there is deliberate uh, disinformation underway, I would have said yes. Mm. But you asked me to what extent, and I don't know that. I just know that it's there. It's got to be there. First of all, logic uh, demands that because we know that there are very powerful and well-funded and well-organized forces out there that do not want this information told. So what what would they do? They would do everything possible to discredit it and demonize it. They would they would have to. But secondly, you can tell by the uniformity of it and the sources of it that has earmarks that you know it's really professional. Unfortunately, I know that a lot of good people fall for it. They perpetuate it. And uh, probably most of what we run into, even though it may have had as its origin some professional source, uh, it's picked up by our friends who are not very critical, and they'll spread it. And that's where it really hurts. Yeah, Yeah, that's a very good point indeed. And I do actually wonder whether a lot of the anti-Semitic material that's out there is actually injected deliberately. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Mm. Um, 
Now, in connection with this, we're almost coming to the end, but I, I do want to quiz you on these things. Um, back in 2008, um, as no doubt you're aware, Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermula wrote a very famous article called Conspiracy Theories, and they advocated an idea that they called cognitive infiltration of conspiracy theory groups, and they're particularly mentioning uh, 9-11 groups. Um, now, one thing that I think is important about this, which I gleaned from the researcher Tom Secker, and I've not heard many people talk about this, is the um, the idea that that article was probably a piece of cognitive infiltration in itself. So that in telling the world that conspiracy groups are going to be infiltrated, they are being infiltrated, that that very announcement made people in the truth movement start to think, ah, perhaps my friend is a shill this phrase then becomes very popular perhaps they're working for the government perhaps they're an infiltrator so that we actually ended up doing much of the cognitive infiltration ourselves for the establishment without them having to lift many fingers to achieve this so i mean my question here is if things like this are so how can we become better at being more sensitive to this kind of thing because we can be manipulated rather more easily i think than we sometimes believe I don't know the answer to that question. It, it is an issue that we deal with constantly. And our working answer is to be totally transparent and honest about everything yes. and uh, let the chips fall where they may and be aware of the possibility. Don't don't jump to conclusions that just because somebody disagrees with you or repeats something that which we consider to be disinformation, that does not automatically make them a disinfo agent, you know? Mm, mm. Just be aware of that. And uh, I don't know, as long as I think we're totally transparent and honest, we have a pretty good chance of overcoming that. Mm. And I'm going to ask you one last very provocative question, <laughs> perhaps a silly question in, in some respects, but I'm going to mention Tom Secker again. He makes the point that the truth movement has produced good work over the years, but he reckons, by and large, it's failing because too many people who identify as uh, such activists are not really doing very good research. They're often doing very poor research and they're recycling memes and, and being very lazy and, and you know, they have the desire to be popular more than truthful. So he goes as far as to ask, is the truth movement dead? Now, obviously, you wouldn't agree with that. I don't agree with that. But does he have something of a point there about his criticism? I think he does. Um, and I think it gets back to the reason we're having the Red Pill Expo. I think that all movements have a built-in death unless they have an objective, which is eternal. Hmm. Now, that's what does that mean? I'm glad you said that. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, what I'm trying, what, what's in my mind and what I'm trying to say is that if, if two or three or more people get together and decide they want to communicate an idea to the world, and their project becomes how to do that. Let's call that a movement for the sake of discussion now. For any movement to be successful, it must know why it's doing it and what it wants to accomplish. If the object is simply to express the idea that brought them together, and if the assumption is that once the idea is known or heard, then everything takes care of itself and the world will be corrected by it. In other words, if truth alone is sufficient to bring about change in society, then I think probably that movement will die. It'll be like a flower. It'll bloom, 
It'll look beautiful. It'll attract a lot of attention. And then it'll age because it's not going anywhere. That's It has no place to go. That's it, to just be a flower. Now, if that movement had said or had built into its strategy at the time of formation that not only do we want to express an idea, but we want to create a mechanism, a strategy, a plan that will move from one person and one generation to another. And the movement is to bring about change, to actually make things happen. And that would include political action as well as uh, social action. It would include an idea of how to become influential in the power centers of society and to affect public policy. If we add that to it, now it doesn't have a built-in death date. All of the movements that I have seen in my years in this battle have gone through that life cycle. And I believe it's because they didn't have an action plan. They didn't have anywhere to go except to say, now that I told you, go forth and do something about it. Well, indeed. Yeah, I mean, people are always asking, well, you say such and such, but what are the solutions? And yeah. what, you're, what you're saying here is a proactive search for solutions with others of like mind. That's basically what I'm getting from this. Yes, that's true. But even more specific, that... The problem is collectivism, and the solution is individualism. Mm. This is a different thought. Most people would say, for example, if they were concerned, as I am, about uh, central banking, banking cartels issuing the money supply and controlling everything because of that long lever, they would probably say, well, now that we've told you about that, let's uh, get rid of central banking. How do you get rid of central banking? As long as you have collectivism, you can't. They have never struck out at the problem, and therefore they can never find the solution. So you are saying that this vision of individualism and resisting collectivism is the backbone that is going to hold these searches for truth together in a way that previously they have been flowers that have withered in the sun. You're saying this is the way in which there's going to be change in future. Yes, uh, because let's just take the the 9-11 truth movement, for example. Mm. What is the goal of this? Is Well, it's to, uh, let's see, it's to get the truth out about 9-11. Uh, well, then what? <laughs> <laughs> then what? Okay. And let's suppose that multitudes out there came to the point, well, by golly, that is what happened on 9-11. And yes, I understand. So what do they do about it? Well, they throw the rascals out that did it. Mm. And they put new rascals in that will do it next time. Good point. Yeah. You see, the solution has never been aimed at the real problem. It's always been aimed at personalities or something very specific. But whereas the problem is generic, it's systemic, it's collectivism. And until that focus is changed, then all of these organizations are going to die unfulfilled of their mission. It certainly is a fascinating perspective. And as you say, it is represented very clearly by what you're doing here at the Red Pill Expo. And if people want to find out more about the guiding ideas that you have, they will need to go to freedomforceinternational.org. But when it comes to going to the Red Pill Expo, you say go to redpillexpo.net so that you can follow those orders. So I do encourage people, if you have the opportunity to go to that, uh, avail yourself of all the opportunities that affords. That's again in the US around 
23rd, 24th of June, go over to redpillexpo.net and book your tickets. Enjoy that unique opportunity. If you are elsewhere in the world and you cannot get there to be in person, as I cannot get there to be in person, then please look out for the links which I'm hoping Mr. Griffin will provide for me, and I'll put those on the website so that when those those videos are broadcast, you'll be able to benefit, as I will, from that experience as it gets broadcast. So may I say to you, Mr. Griffin, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. It's been very fascinating, but also very provocative, and you've caused me to wonder about some of the ways that I look at, uh, particularly the political world so thank you very much for doing that and thank you very much for spending time with us when you must be so busy with this expo that's coming up in a few weeks thank you very much for joining us well julian thank you for inviting me i have to tell you that it's a pleasure there's nothing that pleases me more than to talk about these issues especially knowing that in some way in this great technological world here's the positive side in some way this message can get out to reach untold millions of people. It needs to be done, and I thank you for your part in that.